funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. gentlemen welcome to silver screen video my name is jacob i'm here with my co-host jonathan what's up john not much jacob it's just uh hotter than hell here in washington state and um i have my window open looking out at the leaves blowing in the wind how that's are you a, that's a nice uh, poetic image for our uh for the director that we are going to be talking about today uh the one and only ingmar bergman uh, now I'll tell you this, full- you know, it's, oh, it's rude to not answer when I ask you how you are. You just kind of blew right past it. <laughs> Sorry. I am. I'm good. Uh, I've been watching a lot of basketball. The NBA is back. So, you know, my, my, uh, my movie going has taken a backseat, a temporary backseat, but, uh, but I'm good, you know, good, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that we went back to that. <laughs> And that I, I definitely said it, and it was great content. So I'm glad we did that. It was. I, the, I wanted to know how you were. The listeners wanted to know how you were. So so now we can move on with the show. <laughs> All right. So, folks, we're going to be talking about Ingmar Bergman today. Um, and you know what? We talked about this a little bit off pod. I'm just going to say it. This is going to be an off week for me. I'm, you know, I'm normally loaded for bear. I'm normally ready to go with all my quotes and you know, all the cool shit we have to say about the directors and blah, blah, blah. But I tell you what, this is, uh, you know, it's been a weird week. I think you're going to have to, you're going to have to take charge on this one, man. You're going to have to, you're going to have to be the, uh, our Ingmar Bergman expert for this episode. Well, the gauntlet has been cast down. I shall retrieve it, but I will say the listeners and myself know where we stand with you now because you have put basketball before us that's okay i just needed to say it so i would feel better about it yeah yeah it's true it's true i have i've been watching a lot of basketball i i've temporarily you know put it in front of everything in my life really but you know it's uh it's it's the it's my mistress you know it's my side piece you know i'll always always come back home uh to the silver screen video even though i've been at the I don't know, sports bar watching basketball. Well, like you were on a good slide and then it just like it just went down yeah, from just, there. Yeah, like, I don't, so I don't know what I'm talking about, um, but right. we are doing Emar Birdman today. And this was a hell of a ride. The four movies we watched. Um, yeah, it, it, it was it was really great. I know obviously you've seen all four that you recommended. I had only seen one of them. So it was uh, it was quite fun. Dude, I'm so excited to talk about Ingmar Bergman, man. We've got Casablanca. Uh, we've got uh, Voyage to Italy. Um, I know. think basketball has already started to rot your brain. Um, <laughs> I am fairly certain Ingmar Bergman didn't direct Casablanca. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of Ingrid Bergman. That's what I'm thinking of. I thought we had another uh, Julianne Moore joke in our hands that I didn't want to be caught sitting silent. <laughs> Look, what can so, I say? It's, uh, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm a comedy genius. You know? Truly. 
So we watched The Seventh Seal, 1957, Wild Strawberries, 1957, which is fucking insane in and of itself. He actually put out four movies in 57 and four more in 58. I don't even understand that. Wild shit. Yeah. And then we watched, uh, what was the name of the third movie? Um, oh, I can't believe I just whispers. forgot it. Yeah, Cries and Whispers, and then we finished it off with Fanny and Alexander, the theatrical version. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to do Ingmar Bergman because obviously he's you know kind of he's quite the important director, but he, I feel like his career doesn't. I don't know the the popular conception of him doesn't quite match up with what his actual career was because he made a lot of movies like. He started out in the um, the uh, Swedish film industry making, you know, kind of really small, like, movies in the 50s and stuff. And it was just kind of didn't really hit that international breakthrough until the twin, you know, the two, two giants of 1957, Seven Seal and Wild Strawberries. And then he became famous. And then by, like, we talked about this when we talked about Persona. On uh, what what episode did we talk about Persona? Was that a six pack? Yeah, that was our very first six pack, which I believe is episode twenty eight. God damn! Look at you, man. Quick on the draw. I'm on those, it. Those episode numbers. Um, but yeah, we talked about a little bit about it with Persona. That by like nineteen sixty six and sixty seven, the Bergman fever was kind of over, and so Persona for him was like, kind of like purposefully like a break with all of his previous work and purposefully experimental to kind of, I don't know, to kind of get back to being like a, a main, like a really like cutting edge director. And then, so cries and whispers is kind of like a different era for him. And then of course, Fanny and Alexander is a, is, is a late, uh, is a late masterpiece, but uh, definitely one of the directors who, I don't think he's solely responsible, but I think his work in the late fifties and early sixties is really a big reason why we have the word art house in our vernacular, why uh, foreign cinema has the reputation that it does for kind of being uh, serious and austere and uh, boring. Frankly, it, it has a reputation for being boring and, a deep and, and, and that kind of thing. I, he's really influential on in how we perceive and how we uh, deal with like cinema from other places other than uh, America, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, when we, when we first decided to do, when we talked about doing this episode, I was, I wasn't super excited. I was excited cause I got to watch the seven seal again. Cause I haven't seen it in forever, but persona for anybody that, that, has not listened to our six pack, our first six pack. Uh, I didn't like it at all. There was nothing about it I liked. So I was a bit nervous as to like, are all these going to be art houses or are all these going to be like uh, films that I can't really connect to or, or however you want to look at it. So then we start off with, with the two we did in the fifties. And like, like you just kind of pointed out, it's very clear. He was in an entirely different part of his career. Right. When he made like those movies in the 50s, early 50s and then late 50s. And like you said, he got put on the map with Seven Seal and Wild Strawberries to to when he did Persona. So it's interesting that you have like not to tell too much because we'll get to it. But Cries and Whispers is like a lesser person, like a more accessible 
persona really like because there's still some of that weirdness there but at the end of the day it's more or less like a fucked up family drama right and and that's really what i like about what we saw in general and and david thompson who wrote about it a little bit he pointed out something i was already thinking and i thought it was interesting because sometimes you know you watch movies and you think am i like am i crazy for thinking this or is this like something that really is real or whatever but i was like he's kind of like uza like focusing on the family aspect right because really at the end of the day that's what a lot of these are especially not the not seventh sill but the other three are primarily family focused like he he focuses on age and family and right. like then like the the nature of those two and how they go together and uh yeah man he he touches on a lot of things i actually want to do some more reading about him simply because i feel like he was a very existential type of person right like it seems like he does think about age and he thinks about the existence of god and that's all the shit I'm interested in that I've been reading about for years that I that I think is very interesting and in how people have different interpretations. Primarily, we see that in his first two we watched, The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. They're a direct examination of humanity, God, and age. And um, yeah, yeah, it's I, really mind blowing, honestly. I, I think more than I think more so than I think we'll do a volume two for Bergman sooner rather than later, simply because I think both of us are are kind of really interested. And also, you know, this is just the surface, you know, these first, I mean, now, now we've talked about five movies. I don't think we, we haven't really gotten into the Virgin Spring, did we? We just kind of talked about it, but you, you didn't see it, did you? No, the Virgin Spring and um, man, what's the other one that you recommended that's still on my list. And I actually wanted to watch it this week. I didn't have a lot of time cause I was a lot of extra time cause I was moving. Uh, Sawdust and Tinsel. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's another one that I want to watch because you you talked about it and uh, how it relates to Lestrada. So I'm very interested. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is five movies out of a really really long career, and you know sometimes accessibility is 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 part of what drives movie going. I mean, obviously, and like Criterion, they released I think like last year or something. They released a box set that's just called. Ingmar Bergman cinema where they released every one of his movies and there's a shit ton of them. And so as a result on the channel, the criterion channel, there's like every movie he ever made is on there and it's crystal clear and, and really kind of beautiful copies of them. So, so yeah, I think we'll maybe do a volume two of him sooner rather than later, because it's interesting to kind of dive below the surface of these ones that, that everybody has seen and kind of, figure out what else is there you know it, it, it might be more fruitful to do than than for some other directors but you want to just get into it man i do and uh before we do uh so i'm kind of obsessed with like scandinavian countries and all of that history in general so uh, i enjoyed the language like hearing them speak it okay. it was pretty fucking awesome uh but having said that gunnar i'll try to pronounce his name gunnar or gunnar uh bjorstrand who plays like the squire in the seventh seal and the husband to the, or the son to the old man in wild strawberries. Mm. He is fucking awesome. He was so good in the seventh seal and the scene between him and his wife, when she tells him he's pregnant, which we'll get to in wild strawberries. It's one of the best scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. Like it was so honestly written. 
which we'll we'll dive more into that when we get to wild strawberries but i wanted to give a shout out to him because he was i have never heard of him or seen him obviously until seventh seal seems like he had quite a career and worked with bergman a few times but either way he was uh he was pretty awesome well i think it's worth mentioning too that um you know bergman had a lot of the same actors that he worked with you know over and over oh, yeah. and over again very similar i mean almost like a theatrical troupe that he kept working with similar to the way that like john ford worked in old hollywood and you know i don't know maybe i feel like i've kind of said this already but just to kind of reiterate it like there are certain directors who represent the art of cinema and represent you know the style and the historical era in which they worked you know i'm thinking of you know alfred hitchcock i think you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find a director who better represented uh kind of post-war hollywood than alfred hitchcock he 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 was the epitome of um i'm not i'm not saying he's the best but he's kind of the most representative of like a Howard Hawks type, a John Ford type, somebody who worked within the system and, you know, followed kind of the aesthetic principles of the day. And I think a modern one is Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg is probably the movie director that most people know the name of. And I feel like he is representative of a a major Hollywood director now, you know, working in blockbusters and mainstream stuff and, but still maintaining, you know, some type of artistry and, and that type of thing. And I feel like Bergman is that for foreign and art house cinema, right? He is more so than Fellini, more so than Ozu or, I mean, really any of them. He, I feel like he is the most representative. He is the people who most people know the name of. If you know the name of a foreign movie director, it is Ingmar Bergman. And I feel like he is kind of representative in that way. And it just you saying that about the acting and, and how like he had these same actors kind of, um, you know, continue in his in his uh, be in his movies multiple times and stuff just made me think of that about how he really is kind of one of the most representative directors uh, in all of cinema because he represents you know foreign art house quote unquote serious filmmaking even though you know I don't think you should necessarily take an art house movie more seriously than a blockbuster just because of its intentions. But, um, but yeah, kind of a representative uh, filmmaker in a way. Yeah. Anyways, I think I already said that. I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that, but yeah, man, you want to jump into it? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump into the seventh seal. And, and, you know, having said that, like about what you were just talking about with art house films and stuff, like not taking it more seriously, less seriously, with art house films in general, like when I was younger and like saw the seventh seal in the library, like this is considered, I, I think a lot of people from what I've read, consider it like a super accessible, like art house film, right? Like same with wild strawberries. And it's interesting because I just, I don't know when, when you watch the seventh seal, I didn't feel like I was watching an art house film at all. And same with wild strawberries. So it's it's interesting to examine that to me simply because, yeah, and we've talked about this a few times uh, here on the on the podcast, just because it's black and white with subtitles doesn't automatically mean it's art house. Right. So I just I don't know if I like the seventh seal was such a, a, a bizarre like a, a, the black plague and you've got death and it's basically like 
a soldier returning from the crusades and he questions everything. He's questioning his life, what he's done when he dies, the existence of God. And you've got chaos and death and religious fanaticism, people being tortured and just all around you. And like, it's just such a, uh, I mean, it's, it's has all the makings of what you would consider an art house film, but like just watching it, I'm like, God, this is like, I would like watch this as quickly as I would watch like Braveheart almost right? because it is a bit, obviously it is a bit deeper because it's primary focus is where do like we as humans fit in to, to this whole thing. And like, if God does exist, why is he letting this happen? And, and I want to know why. And like, he's just seeking these answers. And, and one of the best scenes in the seventh seal is when he's talking to the woman possessed by the devil, allegedly. Right. And he's like, I, I want to talk to the devil so I can ask him about God. And that's just, that's insane. Yeah. Like the, the whole, the whole movie is just, uh, I don't know, man. It, it was just, it, it felt so genuine, which is why I want to know more about Bergman. I want to know more about his religious philosophies and like where exactly he fell on that scale of like, did he believe in God? If he did like in what way and, and you know, all those typical questions because he seemed like a very contemplative guy. Yeah. It, it's interesting that, you know, and you know, art house cinema kind of, kind of literally exploded with this, with this movie. You can say wild strawberries too, but I mean, wild strawberries came out later, like came out like seven months later or whatever. This is, this is the, the, the movie that, a lot of you know people went and saw in 1957 and realized oh wow there are there are other ways to make movies you know um you know movies that are more serious and more artistic minded and movies that you know think about what it is to be human and that kind of thing and so so yeah i I think it is one of the most accessible it's certainly not as nakedly experimental as he would get later in persona but I think that is the chief kind of charm about this movie. And I feel like, I feel like there's, I don't want to say there's a movement away from Bergman because I mean, how can you move away from Bergman? But I feel like there's, you know, with some of his more iconic movies, I feel like there's maybe a little bit of a, like, Oh, this is a history lesson. Like, look how important this movie is. And, you know, when you watch the seventh seal, all of that gets completely wiped away because it's you feel the vitality kind of radiating off the screen. It's 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 filled to the brim with all these interesting ideas and this beautiful kind of stark black and white imagery that, um, you, you know, you, you think if you you think, well, how many different things can you do with black and white? And you see this compared to like the Hollywood black and white movies of the day, and you're like, oh my god, it's so different. It's so stark and the the lighting is so different and unique and, and um, it's uh, it's definitely a master at work. Well, you know, it's the same thing I said when I just before I forget, when I watched persona, I believe the only positive thing I said about it was their use of black and white. Like it's, it's so crisp. And like in this movie, he was even more on display of like such sharp images and he just knew how to frame it. He knew how to run the shot. Like it was a, he was so uh, I, I, deliberate with everything he did. Right. 
especially when it came to filming this. Yeah, man, it was just uh, sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to say, yeah, you're right. The black and white is it's it's beautiful. No, I, I was just going to say that I think that the, that that cinematography has a lot to do with the, the the one of the central kind of vibes around this movie, which is the Middle Ages, kind of the medieval Middle Ages. And, you, you, you know, when we think of the Middle Ages like today, right, we think of it as kind of like you know, from like a Game of Thrones, like, you know, perspective of like medieval warfare and stuff, you know, most, most movies set in medieval times or, or, you know, maybe it's some kind of fantasy world that looks like medieval, uh, the the medieval era, like it's all like kind of action based and, and, you know, and, you know, Robin Hood and that kind of stuff. And not to say that that's necessarily bad, but it's just kind of an aesthetic product of the time. Whereas, like, some of these, and especially Andre Rublev, which we recently watched uh, for our, our second six-pack, you know, you get, like, the feeling that you're, like, entering another planet, right? Like, you're not seeing, like, a popcorn movie version of the Middle Ages. You're seeing what it really must have been like, you know, the kind of desperation and a lot of mud and a lot of a lot of nothing really you know and a lot of like human beings just kind of trying to just fucking stay alive you know and you know that must that's how things must have been and and an intense focus on religiosity i mean you know it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine how these people thought of religion you know it 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 would have never entered their mind to question that. And I don't mean that they were stupid. I just mean that they were, it was the prevailing ideology to, to the, to the extreme, you know, and it, 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 that is the world that the movie takes place in, you know, and it's uh, same thing with Andre Rublev, right? Like Andre Rublev was, you know, an artist, an icon painter, but he never like, separated his art from a intense devotion to you know his religion and yeah that's how an artist would have lived back then he would have saw those things as directly linked as opposed to a modern artist or a post-renaissance artist who who wouldn't really have seen them linked at all and so like it's it's literally like going in like going on a different planet like it it it's the past is a foreign country but it's it's almost like the past is a different different solar system. Like you and you really feel that with the seventh seal and you feel it with Andre Rublev, which I think is I think it's really hard to do. It's really hard <laughs> to like watch that movie and be like, Oh yeah, this was made in the fifties. Like, you don't think of it. You think of it as like being in the fucking Middle Ages. If we had cameras in the Middle Ages, this is the kind of thing that those cameras would have captured. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and I think very few movies can achieve that because as you pointed out, you've got your your Game of Thrones type brave heart right. like some some renditions of King Arthur stuff like that. And it's all about set and it's all about we're trying so hard to make you feel like we're medieval, but really we're missing the point entirely. Right. Like all of these guys, it was filthy. It was, yeah, it, it, it really captured. Same with Andre Rublev, especially with the mud. Since you mentioned mud, I think that's amusing because you're right. Like so much, like you're, you're the monk's robes, yeah. you know, constantly dragging the mud. Like there's just, it's, there's such a filthy thing to it. 
before I forget, I want to do a huge shout out. He he is recently passed, I think about three months ago now. Yeah. Max von Sadow. And uh he was so good in the seventh seal as the knight who was basically just contemplating his life and death and the existence of God. Right. And uh he's also in Wild Strawberries, pops up in a very interesting scene that we will get to. Before we move on from the seventh seal, I'll say two things. Talk about a great companion piece. And I don't know if we, I don't know if when you suggested these four, you intended this to be the case, but you have the seventh seal, which as we've said, it, it, it goes over like the existence of God and like the examination of our lives. And is there any order or anything to this crazy shit going on? And then you've got wild strawberries where it just goes over the inevitability of death. Right. And the inevitability that we're going to get old, there's no way around it. Unless you die young, you grow old. Like there is no other route. And they're just really interesting companion pieces. But the second thing is, I want to get your thoughts on the ending of the seventh seal. Because I didn't have a ton of time to do any reading about the ending, but it was kind of perplexing to me. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, like, I think we can maybe open that up into a little bit of a broader conversation, like regarding the, regarding the use of, I I mean, how would you even describe it? The use of death as a character, obviously in the seventh seal. So like, yeah, I mean, what is, is that magic realism? Is that fantasy? Like death is an actual character who enters the picture and like, you know, cuts down a tree with somebody in it to kill them. And he plays chess with death in order to like, you know, stave off death and and, and stuff. And so like, well, real quick, I will say, you know, cause you watched the same four as I did and you've watched more Bergman. He, he liked to dive into the, to the, the kind of weird fantasy supernatural. I think we see examples of that in every movie right. that we watched. So I feel like this is a bit more overt than the other right. ones. Um, but yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Like it's, it's almost like, is this fantasy? Like it, this isn't a straight up medieval drama. Like there is like some, some fantastical elements to right. it. Right. Yeah. I guess that's the best way to say it is just, yeah, it has just like fantasy elements to it. And, and I, I think that's, you know, that's the ending, you know, which, is is kind of a cultural thing you know the dance macabre you know the dance of death you know i mean i guess which aspect of the ending are you talking about because i think there's like the there's the resolution of the ending which is that you know the knight has has achieved something uh has achieved something that he was searching for and we kind of find out that that achievement lies in the connection between people you know which i think is kind of profound and simplistic but also well profound but then there's also the fantasy element of it which is you know them sort of watching the the people kind of being led off in this dance of death at the end so i don't know what did what did you think about the ending you said you were perplexed by it yeah i mean i guess perplexed might be the wrong word but essentially it's like you've got You've got your somewhat of a resolution. I mean, I'll use that word rather loosely when it comes to like what exactly your interpretation of like their standoff with death at the end is. So they're dancing up the hill and 
you've got the actor and his wife who were both phenomenal. Like he was the bar scene. He was so good uh, when they were like attacking him for no reason, because when he realized he was actually in real danger, he did so much with his face. Like there were parts when you really weren't supposed to laugh, but like he did, he did such a great job of being like melodramatic that it was, it was comical at times, which I'm sure was the point. So they're just looking at these guys walk off with death. And I'm just thinking like, they're basically they're They're going like, yeah, it is the dance of death. Like they're all going to die. Like, I don't know. It was just really, it was a really bizarre ending that I, I still am thinking about, which I think is probably the point. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like I said, I don't really have a clear way I felt about it in terms of telling you how I think it was trying, what it was trying to represent. Right. It, it, it reminds me of, and again, this is just going back to kind of the medieval uh, nature of the whole project, which is like, you know, you look at some of these icon paintings, you know, or you look at some of this medieval paintings and stuff and they, you know, they weren't representing reality. You know, like it, like it'll be like a picture of the Virgin Mary with a big giant, um, a big giant, uh, like it looks like a halo, but it's, it's instead of a halo, it's just like a yellow disc, you know, like it's not realistic. They're kind of like flat portraiture. And like, it wasn't because they were like stupid and didn't know how to, how to do things. It was because that was like, that was the aesthetic of the time. You know, they, they weren't, they weren't even interested in representing reality. And I think that's kind of the case with this, the, this ending is because it's, it feels very like when you describe it, it's like, okay, well, the guy is kind of, you know, fighting with death, this whole movie. And then finally he succumbs to death. And instead of him like dying, like you would think in a, in a movie, someone dies, it's like death leads them you know, over a hill and someone kind of watches their, um, the figures on the landscape, which is a, sh- a shot that will recur throughout a lot of Bergman's work. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, uh, uh, where the ending doesn't kind of make narrative. Se- well, it does make narrative sense, but it kind of is, it's more of a poetic ending where it's like, I don't know, this just, this just feels right. You know? Uh, yeah. Because it's taken you on this, like, this strangely deep journey examining like does God exist? Does he care what's going on? There's a plague ravaging the countryside, you know, millions of people are dying and it's like, you didn't really get any answers. Like you didn't really get anything. You were technically like, because that conversation he has with death, where it was very similar to a Catholic confession, like that was a great scene to where it's like you you still didn't get what you were seeking. And I guess that's the beauty of the ending, because I'm not complaining about the ending. I was just curious as to what your thoughts were, because I still haven't completely formed sure. mine. I, uh, I, but yeah, I'm just because I was just in a, a way different headspace than I was when I watched it the first time, because the first time I watched it on a, a, a video copy I got from the library when I was like 15. I think it's one of those so. endings where also like you just are kind of like, Hmm, like what to make of this, you know? I mean, regarding the, the quote unquote end of the, the narrative. I mean, I, I thought that there was kind of, um, and this is something that we will, we'll see with a lot of Bergman's work, which is uh, it'll spend the entire movie kind of very bleak and existential and is God dead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
but usually it forms some kind of narrative resolution. And I think it, it does in the seventh seal. I mean, he, he basically admits like the thing that I was looking for, I found it. And it's not some big higher purpose. It's literally just basically connecting with other human beings. You know, it's his relationship with the family and being able to like share like a meal of the, you know, milk and strawberries, you know? Um, I mean, I don't, yeah, and I guess, like, in my cynicism, if I'm being right. honest, like, I just viewed that as, like, a humanity cop-out. Because no offense to Bergman, but we have a lot of films that obviously probably take its lead from this and several other films where we end up, oh, well, the power, the secret was always a, a human connection or family or this or that. And it's just, like, that's just a distraction to where the higher power still doesn't have to answer for anything. Like... So, like, I am being a bit cynical when it comes to that. But, I mean, yeah, because I agree with you. That really was, like, you're right. That was the movie's way of being like, see, we kind of did give you something. Right. Like, we, we did give you some some type of uh, ending that, that would kind of appease you. But I guess from me being, like, you know, the unpleased observer, I guess, uh, is kind of where my head was Well, at. you know, that's, you know, I think there's a lot of going on there. You know, right. I think there's there's one like there's one thing which is like your reaction to the movie, like not you, Jonathan, but you just the the spectator. You know, you can watch the movie and be like, like cynical about it and be like, well, you know, maybe it did kind of there had there there was some kind of resolution, but I I didn't see it that way. It was all bleak to me. Right. I'm very cynical and that's what I believe and blah, blah, blah. But that kind of like, and that's a completely valid way to like watch it. But I also think there's a clue to like Bergman's uh, sensibilities in that ending, which is, you know, he's not making this for like a big audience, you know? So we have to assume that this is his, you know, his mostly unrestrained vision. And, you know, that is something that recurs throughout his works, which is that there is, there is hope, right? And maybe not hope is the right word, but there is some, some comfort in the sense that it's not all bad, like in the face of, of, you know, uh, sort of unsurpassable anguish and, and silence from the, you know, uh, silence from God and, and, and so forth and so on, that there is, kind of these little nuggets of respite uh, throughout all this. And I think, and, you know, I don't know, maybe this is getting a little, a little too off topic and a little too life philosophical, but, you know, I, I think that no matter how cynical you can be, I don't think you can be a true cynic if you're an artist, right? And I don't think you can be a true, a true cynic. I think it's hard to be a true cynic. That's what that's what I'll say. And I think that if you're a true cynic and you're Ingmar Bergman, you're thinking, well, I'm not even going to make movies because what's the point? What's the point in doing art? So I, I, I think that ending is not so much uh, not genuine or like for the audience's benefit. I think it's a true representative of his artistic sensibility, which is I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about the silence of God and I'm thinking about cruelty and and so on and so forth and that we're alone and blah 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 but you know i i do think there are 
certain things that maybe if it doesn't make life worth it, it makes it makes you feel like you at least did something uh, somewhat meaningful. And I think Bergman is saying at the end of Seven Seal that it is these these moments of human connection, you know. Well, I think uh, you're you're on the right track with saying like we did kind of get an an inside look at what his sensibilities are as not just an artist but also a filmmaker because this is a good segue for Wild Strawberries because in Wild Strawberry, like you see, for good or bad, he places value. Uh, on the next three films that we w- we'll talk about, he places value on human connection right. and family, be it for the better or the worse of of the individual. Like there's still value in those relationships and that right. family. And with Wild Strawberries, you know, there's a couple of of great examples of that. And um, and I guess before we before are you ready to jump to Wild Strawberries? I am. I, I will say this. I will say this. Let me just say this really quick. And this, this I think is gonna, this I think is gonna kind of go through our conversation, but it's also gonna be kind of a personal response. You know, I think both of us can tend to be very cynical, and I think being very cynical and being very kind of nihilistic is, um, it's the spirit of the age, right? Not not to get too grand about it, but it is. It is the spirit of the age. You can feel it in the air. You can feel the the nihilism and the hopelessness in the air, right? But I will say this, and I I believe this. I don't think that I think the person who's truly cynical and truly black pilled to the nth degree is someone who uh, has completely checked out of life. And I, I think if you are, I think most people, most people have something that they care about, right? Like I cannot pretend to be completely like black pilled and nihilistic and also be in the process of writing a book. Right. Because what is the, like the push comes to shove. What are you writing the book for? Huh? If you're a big tough guy and everything's nihilistic and nothing matters, blah, blah, blah. All right. What are you writing the book for? Big shot, you know? And so you kind of have to, you kind of have to like reckon with your own vulnerability and be like, okay, fine. Fuck you. I do. I do think there's something nice in the world. Right. I do think there's something nice in the world. Otherwise I wouldn't be writing this book, you know, and you know, each ind- for each individual thing, that's different, you know, like it, it's like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, and we can edit this out if you don't like talking about it on the pod, but like for you, like I know you're cynical and nihilistic and stuff, but like if you truly were black pilled and truly were completely nihilistic, like you would eat meat. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is something you care about. There is something that each one of us cares about. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that in regards to your interpretation of the movie. I'm, I'm saying that in regards to this is what I think Bergman gets. This is what he gets and understands, which is that you can be the knight, right? We're all the knight. We are all this knight in the seventh seal. We are all questioning our existence, questioning the futility of all things. God is silent. The plague is destroying the landscape, literally, in our case, in 2020. But there is one thing that we all hold on to, 
Now, some people have completely gone off the deep end. You know, some people commit suicide. Some people really are completely black-pilled and nihilistic, don't believe in anything, don't have any relationships. But I think the vast majority of people, I think 99% of people, regardless of how cynical and nihilistic you want to be, there is a sliver. You know, your fingers may barely be on that ledge, but they are still on that ledge. There's something that's keeping you alive, that's keeping you putting in some kind of effort and, and something that you care about, something that make is that is making life at least a little bit worth living. And I think that is, I think that is what is so key to the ending of this and, and the ending of wild strawberries, which will, I think this is a perfect segue, which is like, yeah, you can be sad. Yeah. You can be nihilistic, but deep down, deep down in you, dear moviegoer, there's something that you hold dear. There's something there in every single one of us. And for the night, it was this connection to this family. And 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 it varies by, you know, by person. But I think I think that is the genius of bourbon. I think and that's what I that's what I think about the ending is that I don't think it's some kind of like, well, you know, things things end up positive, and it's it's okay. There's something that's making worth life worth living. I don't think it's that. I think it's actually a philosophical statement of, yeah, motherfucker. But you know, there's something inside that you care about. There's something. I don't know what it is, but it's there's something there. You know. Yeah, and and I think I think that's the beauty of Bergman in general because you know he wrote he obviously wrote the Seven Seal and he wrote Wild Strawberries, and I think that that's clear in his thought of like, yeah, there I I might be from like an artistic perspective, like dangling off the ledge of like, uh, we're all going to get old and die. It, it, does God exist? If he does, does he care? Like, yeah, family will let you down sometimes, blah, blah, blah. But like, they're still like, they're still family. Like with all these things that he examines, I feel like it's pretty, that's pretty clear. That's how he feels as well. And I mean, because you've got you've got to basically put yourself like in the perspective, like to say we're all looking at a faceless clock, right. so to speak, like in terms of like in the in the amazing, beautiful dream sequence of right. wild strawberries. So I uh, no, I agree with that. And I think that there's there's always there's there's something there to examine, especially from like an artistic right. level and. With dealing with wild strawberries, which, yeah, you're right, it's a great segue. It's about an, a professor who is basically going to get an award, but it is he has to confront a lot of shit. He has to confront the fact that his existence is empty and he's going to die and he can be cold. And there's so much going on in this movie. When we text about it, I was about 30 minutes into it, and you had said that it's like the Irishman or the Irishman is like wild strawberries. And I can see that, but it's interesting because another movie kind of comes to mind and I didn't really know how to, how to uh, frame it until I actually read uh, somebody wrote an essay on it. And then I was like, Holy shit, that makes perfect sense. It's going to sound weird, but this is like the antithesis of breathless. Oh, interesting. Like when, cause, cause they kind of alluded to it but then they didn't really go the full way. So it like has been stuck in my brain since I read it a few days ago. And it's like breathless is about an act of violence. And then it's like, a like a road trip of sorts of like, 
yeah, going through the odysseys of like being young and the world can't hurt right. you. And like, I've got, you know, I, I am God of my own land and stuff. This movie is about a man who's old and his time is winding down and he doesn't want to confront it. And he also has an odyssey of sorts. He goes down memory lane, nostalgia driven. He picks up youthful drifters and see, he basically is like looking in the past of their relationship. And like, he, he's also struggling to connect with his daughter-in-law who clearly doesn't like him. And it's clear in the past he has said things that would make her feel the same as she states. This movie is brutally honest and there's nothing whimsical about it. It might be one of the most honest screenplays in terms of uh, communication and life that I've ever right. seen. And uh, yeah, man, their conversations in the car, his dream sequence, which is one of the most amazing things I've, I've seen from this era. This was made in 1957. The dream sequence was uh, it was, it was uh, speaking of, you know, we, we talked about uh, Bergman being supernatural. Right. Um, this what this did feel supernatural at times. It felt like you were watching a horror movie, empty streets and coffins and bodies rolling out and men with without with no with not a lot of facial features and faceless clocks and is just a really fucked up dream sequence. And it's it's a fucking right. nightmare, really. And uh yeah, man, I don't know. This movie was something else. Like I had, I had heard of Wild Strawberries before. People had talked about it. How it's this, like, really real, like, examination of growing old in life. And I'd never really given it much thought. But yeah, this movie was pretty fucking heavy. Like, like I said before, this is a double whammy. Like, this is a hell of a double feature if you're gonna watch two movies. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think this is. You know, it's easy to see a lot of different things in Wild Strawberries. I mean, literally, the Irishman is essentially Wild Strawberries, but with gangsters, you know, and that's, you know, a lot of movies. I mean, when, when I when I watched the dream sequence, I couldn't help but think of Tony Soprano's dream sequences, you know, and like every every kind of existential, you know, man kind of questioning like. Am I happy? Have I ever been happy? You know, this kind of existential questioning has become a trope throughout throughout movies, you know, anti-heroes and and stuff like that. And and it's distilled down to its its finest essence here, you know, and and not just that this movie asks the question, am I happy? But it takes it in certain ways a next level and says, is happiness even right. real? Like this movie is fucking layered. Like this is, I'm telling you, it's one of the most impressive screenplays in terms of how he wrote this I've ever seen. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I, I feel like it's just such an intense examination of, of kind of modern malaise and just like, uh, it's really, really personal and down, like boiled down to the individual and this kind of individual portrait of like how you can live a life but not really live it. You know what I mean? There, there's this quote in tree of life that I really, that I really love. And it, it sounds corny and, it, and it, it is corny really, but you know, it's the kind of corny thing that Terrence Malick, you know, does quite often, but it's, it, it's this quote that says, if you basically, if you don't love without love, life will pass you by. And, I love that. I love that quote because it's, it, you know, it's, it's as, it's as 
corny and obvious as it is true. Like if you don't have like, you know, these kind of human connections, if you don't have, you know, uh, love in your life in some way, it, life will pass you by and you will wake up one day and think, wait, what do I have anything valuable? Like what, like, do I have any relationships that I value? Do I have any, do I have anything, you know? And I think that's, you know, I think that's wild strawberries in a nutshell. You know, this guy basically, he isn't much of anything, you know, he, he's, he's just kind of a dis disconnected kind of successful academic and, you know, and it's like a rumination on that, you know? And I have, I have a weird, I have a weird question real quick. Do you remember the scene? I referenced it earlier when we were talking about Max von Sydow when he's the gas station clerk and, and, uh, the professor says, why should you pay for my gasoline? And he said, there are some things that can't be paid back. And the wife's like, we haven't forgotten he says, ask anyone around here, they'll remember your kindness. And he laughs and he's like, maybe I should have stayed around here. That's an interesting scene because did it happen? All right. Like, is this is this his subconscious telling him that, of course, there are things that you've done. Of course, there's things that that you've done as a doctor and as as, as what you are as, as a professor, this really smart, distinguished old man. Of course, there's things that you've done that can't be paid back. You are right. a good person. That scene really was bizarre because it was almost too Stepford. It was it was too much. The smiling gas station clerk and the happy right. wife and they have another child on the way. I don't know. It's a very weird scene that I caught and kind of just thought about it a little bit. It just didn't sit right. You no, know, I didn't. I don't know what your I didn't thoughts read are, the but... scene that way personally, but I can. See, but now that you said that, I can see it, you know, and which I think is a like now that that's that's such a feature of these movies. They're the kind of things that you can, the kind of movies that you can really kind of pull apart and debate, you know, and that's a lot of reasons why these movies caught on in the United States in the late fifties. Cause you had a bunch of, you know, college kids who had grown up watching, uh, you know, watching classic Hollywood movies. And then they're faced all of a sudden with wild strawberries and the seventh seal. And they want to sit up and smoke cigarettes and talk about movie, talk about, these movies all night in different interpretations of it, which is, yeah, I think that's a feature, not a bug. You know, I didn't read the scene that way, but now that you said that, I'm like, Oh, interesting. Like, and I, I think the, the fun thing about that is not to get to some kind of like truthful answer of like, yes, this scene was real or yes, it was a fantasy, but like, that's part of the fun of these movies. I think, um, and I do mean fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, I didn't read the scene that way, but I can totally, now that you said that, I can totally see it. Like, yeah, like that kind of like mechanized, like Stepford Wives gas station attendant kind of with this rictus grin. And that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't see it that way, but I get it, you know. But before, but I just want to say before I forget, so so the the actor, the the Gunnar Strasbourg guy, I can't remember his name anyway, the guy that I commented, he plays the husband, the son right. to Isaac. Dude, their scene in the car is it, it, I, I I occasionally you watch a movie. I don't know if you do this. I haven't done it in forever, really. But occasionally you watch a movie and you watch a scene and you have to rewind it oh, and watch yeah. it again. And their scene in the car was fucking great. When he says it's absurd to bring children into this world and think they'll be better off <laughs> than we were like and 
And then the the great like and also like I looked this up because I was curious. Apparently, a lot of people love this exchange. It's very quick. Um, it's fucking a beautiful exchange. She says you're a coward because he's basically saying fuck you. If you have the kid, I'm leaving. I want nothing to do with it. Like right. this is bullshit. So she's like, you're a coward. And he says, yes, this life sickens me. I will not be forced to take on a responsibility that will make me live for one day longer than I want to. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's some of the bleakest shit I've ever heard. Like, it, it, with two people fighting. Like, oh my God. Oh, man. Yeah. That... <laughs> and it's like, how much of an indictment on Isaac when he sees how his daughter-in-law is and once he learns of the situation, how much of his an indictment is it on him that his son is this husk of a human being? <laughs> like, Right. It's like, you did this. Motherfucker. It's like, I, if you think I'm going to take anything that's going to make me live longer, <laughs> fuck you. Like, <laughs> uh, It's just fucked, man. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's fucking good, man. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 No, that's so funny. Like, yeah. You like you created this, like he is this way because of you motherfucker, you know? Yeah. I mean, all in all, there were parts in the movie where I was like, like, yeah, this is like, th there were certain things to take away that I, that I really enjoyed in terms of how I wrote it. But for the most part, like, don't watch Wild Strawberries if you're having a good day. <laughs> like, <laughs> watch it on a day where you're like, I could feel better. And just kind of kind of uh, enjoy it that way. Because I think that any movie that kind of brings to the forefront and brutally realistic manners that you will get old, you will reflect on life. And if you fucked up, there's no do-over. Right. It's just like, well, I fucked up. I'm 80 now. Um, uh, fuck it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about either way. Episode. This. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and lead lead the way. Because I, you know, I feel like we, I feel like you know, we just talked about the Seven Seal ending, and I feel like, I feel like that ending is here, right? The ending of like just like in the Seven Seal, where like life is bleak, blah blah blah, but there is something. There is something to hold on to. Otherwise, you'd, you know, you'd kill yourself right now if you didn't have something to hold on to. There's one thing that's keeping you keeping you there. And I think that ending is there in Wild Strawberries, clearly. But it's more ambiguous, I think, than The Seventh Seal. I mean, what did you think about it? Did you did you buy it? Did you did you buy this kind of dying in peace moment or? Maybe, maybe I guess there's now that you've uh, said that about the gas station, I think, well, maybe there's another reading. Maybe it's maybe it's fantasy. Maybe he's dreaming that he died in peace or something. You know, I, I don't know. What did you think about it? Well, you know, I don't want to sound like uh, everything we just talked about a minute ago, but uh, <laughs> I will say uh, I think this is what we get to see like from a from an optimistic perspective of like yeah like i'm ready like this is I, i'm going off into this like 
this happy thing. It's like, but, but in all actuality, I think, I think it's fabricated. I don't possibly see how we could end up here when we have seen what we've seen with Isaac. Like I, there is no quick fix to this. There is no like, Oh yeah, now I see everything clearly. Like, so not to sound like a cynical asshole. It's like, no, I don't buy it. I actually buy the ending of seventh seal way more. If you just look at it from like, yeah, this is the lesson I found. Like, this is my life. This is what I need. I don't need your answers. I don't need that for fulfillment. I buy that way more than the ending of Wild Strawberries. Okay. okay. How about you? Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll just kind of say what I said a minute ago, which is I, I think the endings are very similar, right? And I do, I, I do think the Seventh Seal one is more... Uh, more unambiguous and more kind of odd than the night. Like there's no reason not to take the night at his word at the end of that movie. He says, I found something, right? I found what I was looking for, right? Like take me, I'm ready to fucking go. I found what I was looking for. And so that I think is a little more unambiguous than the ending of wild strawberries. But I, I also, I, I feel like we have to take Bergman at his word. Right. Whether it worked for me is kind of I don't want to say it's beside the point because it, it's not like it, whether it worked for me is something that I would have to think about more. And I, I, I guess it worked. OK, fine. I guess it worked for me in the sense that Ingmar Bergman is saying this is my artistic sensibility. I think it's possible at this point for someone to die in peace. Right. Maybe it's delusion. Maybe it's uh, wishful thinking or whatever, but I, I think it is an accurate portrayal of Bergman's artistic sensibility, if that makes sense. That, and I think it boils down to this human connection. And I think that it's a Band-Aid over a bullet hole, but it's still a Band-Aid at the end, you know, to kind of ease this guy off into, into death. It's, it's less unambiguously good, but I do think it's it's a it's a it's a it's a reflection of his artistic sensibility, which is that human connections can kind of can kind of paper over all ills, if that makes sense. And that yeah. the power of human connection is is powerful enough to even let this miserable fuck who has been confronted with all of his demons and all of his faults and et cetera, et cetera it's so strong that it's even possible to paper over this guy's miserable fucking death. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think that, you know, my, my personal thought, regardless of whether I buy it or not, if I like the honest answer would be outside of whether I do would be regardless of what it is that it helps you sleep at night or brings you peace. I mean, that's what you're going to embrace. And I, and I would like to think that that is what brought him peace. Like that is just what it was right. like. So regardless of whether it was, it was there or not, it's more about what it represented than what it actually is. Yes. That is, so, that is the best way to say it. Yes. I was like hemming and hawing around it. Yeah. Yes. No, that's perfect. It's more about what it represented than whether or not you like buy it in the moment. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you buy it in the moment. This is a character in a movie, right? Like 
it doesn't matter whether or not it makes sense to you or whatever. What matters is what it represents, which is that it represents that, that, you know, that finger on the ledge, that last little foothold that you have that's keeping you from going into the abyss. And whether or not you buy it for this guy doesn't matter because it's, he's, he's somebody else. Like, like it, what, 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 what is keeping you hanging on the ledge is not the same thing as keeping me hanging on the ledge. You know what I'm saying? So like at the end of the day, you're right. That's perfect. It doesn't matter. It, it what matters is what it represents, which I think is, is yeah. God, no, that's, that's the best way to put it, man. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it, 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 you guys, if you haven't seen either one of these movies, like watch them. Wild Strawberries is just it, it's really something else. It, it's a it's a it's an examination of a lot of things. And you really just have to see it and, and, and absorb those scenes and see exactly what happens in it to really wrap your head around what we're talking about. So once you guys do watch the seven seal or that, let us know in those comments about what you thought of the ending or like what your thoughts of the movie were in general, because I'll be honest with you, Wild Strawberries is going to be a movie that gets added to my like rewatch schedule and not to sound too cliched, but I think it's a movie that I'm going to appreciate more and more as I get older in terms of how it deals with age. Right. And almost like a, almost like an instruction manual on what not to do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's like note to self. Don't be 80 and realize uh, you're a piece of shit. Uh, (laughs) I think it bears. There is no redo button. (laughs) I think it bears mentioning just briefly before we move on to uh, Cries and Whispers is the fact that he was, you know, he was, uh, wait, how old was he? He was 39 when he made this. So, I mean, he's middle aged. This is, you know, this is, and I think that's important. This is not the work of an older man like saying this is what it's like to be an old man this is the work of a middle-aged man saying this is what i'm scared of happening to me you know uh whatever man 39 is still really really young you're basically still a child at that point so i don't want to hear it (laughs) no that's what i'm saying like it's like a like it's like a middle-aged man being like i like this is what i'm worried about happening to me if i don't if I don't shape up, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be an 80-year-old, loveless guy who made movies and people respect me and whatever. But that's, you know, that's that's not what I want to turn into, right? Whereas, and this is, I could talk about this for hours, I feel like. But it's interesting to compare this with The Irishman. Because Scorsese is kind of doing the same thing with The Irishman. But he's doing it from the perspective of an old man. He's doing it and saying, man, I'm so glad I didn't turn into this. This is what I could have been, but I'm not. Whereas Bergman, from his perspective, is saying, like, wow, like, I really hope I don't turn into this. I've got to try to not do this. Whereas Scorsese is going, I'm so glad I didn't end up like this, you know? And it should be noted that Bergman died alone and all of his children hated him. <laughs> you know what? I, no, but how great would it have been if it was? <laughs> like, how great would it have been oh, for you fuck. to say, for, for you to say that he, 
that he made that movie as an instruction manual for himself to not be that guy. And then it just undercuts all of it. Um, but no, uh, that's not true. Uh, if anyone from the Bergman estate, uh, that, that was a joke. Uh, don't sue us or anything. Um, yeah. Oh man, you had me there, man. I really thought I was going to say all that and you were going to be like, yeah, well he died alone and all his kids hated him. (laughs) Um, but no, in all seriousness, I agree with your point 100%. I think that's exactly what it was. And uh, especially in The Irishman, it's like, yeah, man, this is, these are, these are, like you said, instruction manuals. They really are of like, don't make these critical errors as you get older because you really will pay for them. Right. Like, uh, so, so just, yeah, just anything that causes you to kind of reflect on getting old and 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 reflect on life in general i don't ever think that's necessarily a bad thing because it is it might be sobering but it is good to remember that we're all mortals and we all meet our maker at some point and uh and yeah i think this movie is like yeah don't be an asshole like isaac that's basically like the tagline for this movie (laughs) or as uh as terrence malick will say in the cheesiest corniest way you know if you don't love life will pass you by you know oh thanks terrence uh i'm sure he said that while like sipping coffee on like the balcony of some apartment in paris all right well we're not Uh, we're not we're not getting i'm not getting dragged (laughs) down into the mud with your with your malik uh so well speaking of speaking of the mud we've been up uh, we've been up top guys we were way up top like 200th floor beautiful views we were great. Now we're about to drop down to about the second or third floor. No views. Uh, you just see the people on the street and you hate your life. Wait, I'm not uh, cries and whispers. Metaphor. What? I'm <laughs> I'm saying that we just spent two movies. They were great. We talked about them. Had a lot to say. Beautiful films. Two of the best. And now we have cries and whispers. Um, <laughs> So my metaphor was was yeah I I don't know what I was doing either way. So you're saying it's like, and whispers. like we were like we were like like the 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 stories in the apartment building are are like a metaphor for like quality right is that is that what it is? If you put me in a position to have to explain the metaphor this much, <laughs> I can't even edit any of this out. <laughs> The point is, we are switching quality here, guys. Cries and Whispers and Fanny and Alexander, they're not what I would call top tier. They weren't bad. I had mixed feelings about both, but neither one of them were like nearly as contemplative or reflective or whatever other words you want to throw in like that. Cries, I mean, we're, we're basically about to dive into two family dramas and and one's way more fucked up than the other. Right. Yeah. You know, and it should be mentioned, we mentioned this at the beginning, but, um, you know, this is, this is a 15 year difference between, uh, you know, the director of wild strawberries and seven seal and cries and whispers. And throughout those 15 years, Bergman has essentially risen to, you know, the highest ranks of international cinema and people falling in love with him. And then of course he, throughout the sixties watched these kind of young upstarts come and kind of steal his, his mantle, you know, the French new wave guys, Truffaut and Godard. And then in 1967, he kind of did a hit the big reset button on his entire aesthetic, 
which was Persona, which we already talked about. And that was like the big giant experimental reset. And everything after Persona was different than everything before Persona. He started working in color after Persona. He, he was a different director. And I think outlining the ways in which he was a different, like he had a different aesthetic sensibility, we can get into a little bit here, but really can only be fully appreciated with a much longer discussion of his like entire body of work. But suffice it to say, he was a changed man. He was operating from a different aesthetic principle. Um, and he was also operating, I feel like, from a different philosophical point of view. I don't think Kreisen, I think I don't think everything persona and afterwards is nearly as like philosophical and existential and interested with the questions of what gives life its meaning. I don't think he's interested in any of that after persona. But but yeah, let me let's just jump into it, man. Cries and whispered. What what's it about and what did you think of it? Well, first I'll say the IMDB synopsis is when a woman dying of cancer in the early 20th century Sweden is visited by her two sisters, long repressed, long repressed feelings between the siblings rise to the surface. I feel like that's not very accurate per se. It, it's, it's there, but it's not like the greatest, but then Google's like, cause I, I, I looked like 20 minutes into this movie, you know, I don't like to do this. We've talked about it on the podcast. I like to go into these movies with no information. 20 minutes into this movie, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I've got to Google what this movie's about because I'm still kind of lost. Like, I know one of them is sick, clearly. So I Googled it. The Google synopsis gives way too much away. So let's just say by the 30-minute mark, I was like, there's going to be some incest and somebody's going to try to fucking kill themselves. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so, so you have a sister dying of cancer and you've got a really fucking weird maid who gives a prayer to to God that she worships. And she's like, yeah, just watch over my kids since, you know, you killed him. Uh, no big deal. Hope he's doing well uh, with you hanging out in heaven. Um, so you've got that. And then you've got the other two sisters. One of them is clearly fucking insane and hates the one who's sick. Like her face is like a burning devil. And the other one seems to have just issues in general. Uh, this movie was fucking weird. Like it wasn't as weird as Persona. There were some parts there that I kind of like. I was like, yeah, I kind of I, I do like what they did because I didn't like Persona at all. But this one, he really toned down the weirdness and made it more relatable. And then there's like a scene which I'm not going to go into really flips this bitch on its side. And it's like, OK, I don't know what the fuck I'm watching right now. <laughs> And then we kind of get brought back to normalcy. Then there's another scene that does that. And then the movie does you the courtesy of ending with a scene that does that. So either way, I'll say this movie was an interesting ride, but it doesn't even hold a candle to, to the first two wild strawberries and seven seal. Um, I'll say this. I actually watched this movie for the first time uh, a few months ago. I was going through a little bit of a Bergman thing. And that's when I watched Sawdust and Tinsel and Virgin Spring. And we talked about it kind of on pod, but never really got into too much detail with, with, with it. I had, uh, I'd never seen it before a few months ago. And when it started out, I, you know, I like persona. It's not my favorite kind of movie, but I like it enough. And I, th I thought that's what we were doing here. I was like, okay, cool. Like we're, we're doing persona. 
but in color, you know, okay, I'm, I'm on board. And it actually turns into a fairly conventional uh, family drama filled with a bunch of like weird sex shit. So I was kind of, yeah, he like, we, he weaves in and out. He weaves to like mainstream sensibilities, like kind of soap opera, kind of like, you know, indie drama. And then he just brings you back into fucked up art house shit. And you're like, huh? Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 it's more, hmm, it's, you know, these are the kind of movies that really kind of let you know a lot about the artistic sensibility of, of someone like him. Like, because the kind of images and the kind of things that he's interested in or obsessed with. And because, yeah, it does. It, it goes back and forth between these kind of long abstract sequences um, of just the color red, <laughs> like uh, a lot of red. Yeah, he, he really has a thing with red, not just in this, but he also has red cuts in Fanny and Alexander and Fanny and Alexander ends on a title card of red. Right. Like, I don't know what his deal is with it. Yeah, it's um, I don't know either. Uh, but it's it's filled to the fucking brim with red uh, in cries and whispers, and it is, yeah, it goes back and forth between just being weird and abstract, and you know, and then in persona, like a spider crawls on the lens of the camera, and the film burns up in its case. But in cries and whispers, we just go into like some some weird family uh, drama and uh, weird sex shit. You know, I don't know. Really weird sex shit. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of kind of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie or, uh, you know, I don't I don't really know. I don't know. Like when you look at Wild Strawberries and Seventh Seal, you can kind of see like the like, oh, this is like, you know, this is like straight up like art house, you know, sensibility. A million movies copied this or whatever. But you look at Cries and Whispers and it feels more singular it feels like oh i really haven't seen a lot of things like this i mean you can say persona but you know this is in color it's a whole different animal i feel like you know well i i also want to add i want to add something real quick this might come off as insensitive but Uh (laughs) the scene with the husband where he like he with with the with the fucked up middle sister um so so he comes in and like she he's eating breakfast and she comes in she had clearly just cheated on him and the kids in there and they exchange whatever it's like I'm watching this and my wife's watching it with me I'm like that motherfucker's going to kill himself <laughs> so he leaves the room and then she follows him and he's just dude he's just such a little bitch he's got this letter over in him it's probably like not even an inch and he's like saying, help me and like falls over and like he's barely bleeding. And then you're like, well, he's clearly not dead. And then he pops up later in the movie. And it's like, how can like you have any self-respect left at this point? <laughs> like, I know that had nothing to do with the movie. That's just me questioning this character who didn't really amount to much right. um, <laughs> to the story. I'm just thinking, God, I don't even like looking at you. Right. Like, what is wrong with you? So <laughs> that was just I don't know. It was it kind of shows like. I was trying to read into that relationship a bit, but I just don't think it was meant to. I don't think you were meant to really care about that relationship as much as just her journey and what she was doing and like the weird shit with her sister and with the doctor and all that. I don't really like, so that's that suicide attempt has to represent something aside from just blatant unhappiness. Right. I just don't know what. Right. So, yeah, you know, something something that strikes me about Cries and Whispers is that it tells you kind of the trajectory that 
you know, quote unquote, art house, serious cinema uh, traversed from from 1957 to 1972. And in 1957, it was all about, you know, questioning and existential and this kind of thing. Whereas in 72, and I think you'll find this in a lot of, of late movies by the old Hollywood masters like Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and John Ford and people like that. It was kind of almost like, here is a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in seeing. You know, here is a bunch of, here's a, a story that I'm interested in telling for some reason. And the immediate reasons are unclear, right? But, and that is kind of what leaves it kind of open to interpretation, open to kind of wrestling with it and figuring it out. It reminds me of like Blue Velvet in a way. And that like, you know, Blue Velvet is about sex and it is about perversion and it's about what's lurking behind like, you know, the average uh, suburban town. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't like there are certain sequences that you're like, what does this mean? Like, what is like, what is the specific nature of this kind of weird sexual game? throughout the middle of this movie. And I feel like that is kind of, that's kind of what cries and whispers is. It's like the next evolution of quote unquote serious, you know, art house cinema or whatever, where it's, it's a lot more open to interpretation and a lot less interested in like solving the mysteries of the universe than it is in kind of embracing that mystery and embracing these kind of individual, these kind of individual cases of weird shit happening. You know, in this case, I think this is I mean, this is like a meditation on where like like think of the word meditation, right? Like what would you call the seventh seal and wild strawberries a meditation on? I mean, there's really nothing more specific you can get than like the meaning of life, basically. Whereas in something like this, this is kind of a meditation on family and sex and gender, uh, dying and grief and and incest yeah and incest (laughs) and and like you know what i mean like the the scope gets narrowed if that makes sense and i think that's uh i think that's the key to thinking about this in relationship to those earlier work whereas like he's like all right i don't care about the universe anymore i just i'm interested in psychology i'm interested in death dying sex the color red these are a bunch of the things that i'm interested in and then he kind of gives it to the audience and you you do with it what you will you hate it or you like it or you are somewhere in between you know i mostly like this i don't know well i i will say this uh i i specifically put this line down in my notes because i, I had to comment on it uh it is towards the end when the four assholes are sitting around like the rich pricks and they're like talking about how they're not going to give anything to the maid and blah, blah, blah. Well, the, the, I think the mean sister's husband has this line. It's the best line of the movie. Uh, he delivered it so dryly. He said the funeral was toliber- tolerable. No one wept or grew hysterical. <laughs> it, <laughs> that's a great fucking line. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's uh, like I have never left a funeral thinking, "Hmm, that was tolerable." <laughs> like <laughs> you watch, so you watch this movie and you're like, "What?" Like this is one of the movies you watch and you're like, "What the fuck is wrong with these people?" <laughs> 
Yeah, dude. You know, and it's funny because that's what I think about Fanny and Alexander. I mean, I think that really a lot of my problems with these movies are they stem from. I just hate watching these elitist, rich, unrelatable motherfuckers do shit. I hate it. It drives me insane. Right. And I and I guess that's the problem, because it's like I, I there's no connection here. There's nothing for me to think about here. It's just like I'm watching this and it's not like I disliked this uh, cries and whispers or Fanny and Alexander, but it is like, I mean, Fanny and Alexander was better in my opinion. Like it, it, it was, it was, we'll get to it, but I think it was a better film, but uh, cries and whispers. Like I just, I get it. Like, I agree with you. I think like, yeah, he was making something. These are the things that interest me. Here you go. Right. Like here's my, here's like my soup that I made with all this shit in it. Enjoy it. Right. So. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know, it's another good comparison is uh, between La Strada and Amarcourt. You know, Amarcourt is definitely a lot more all over the place than Cries and Whispers. But, you know, Fellini did that evolution too. In La Strada, he's like, the quote unquote idea of the movie is very simple. Whereas in something like Amarcourt, it's like, yeah, this is just some shit, you know this is just some shit that I've been thinking about and that I'm interested in and maybe it'll hit home for you and maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, I don't give a shit, you know? Well, it's, it's funny you say that because when we did our Fellini episode, uh, which I believe was uh, episode, I'll have to find it. So in case you guys can go back and listen to it, if you haven't seen it, when we did it, uh, episode 23, I didn't care for Amarcord at all. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't really in, enjoy it. Um, but when I started um, Fanny and Alexander, I was like, God damn it. This is Amarcord all over again. That's exactly what I thought. Like when I put it on. Oh, really? Like, okay. Yeah. Like, because it was like, it felt like, but mind you, that was before, like I, I got into the movie. Cause this is a beefy movie, three hours, eight minutes. Right. So that was like before I got into it. So this is just the beginning. You're seeing this family, you're seeing Christmas, you're singing and food and existence and life and culture and all this stuff. And uh, I'm watching and that's what I thought of. I thought of Amarcord because Amarcord was like a day in the life of family and problems and this and culture and all that. Right. So but then it, it takes off and I really started to dig it around the halfway mark, which is why I'm, I'm thinking, did it need to be three hours and eight minutes? But either way, that's what I started thinking when I put it on. I literally like thought to myself, yeah, this is going to be Amarcord all over again and I'm not going to enjoy it. But then it it, it really started to interest me uh, about the halfway mark. Yeah. But, it. Um, <clears throat> so let's. So Fanny and Alexander is 1982. He this is an autobiographical, uh, significantly autobiographical movie for him. It is a story about about a family, basically, uh, with emphasis on the two kids um, Fanny and Alexander, who are siblings. Uh, and it's it was originally conceived as a miniseries. So it's originally was supposed to be a miniseries. And it, it, it is a miniseries. You can, the, this is on the Criterion channel, the, the version, it, it is a miniseries. So it was conceived as a TV show and was made as a TV show, but there is a shortened theatrical version that has gotten more acclaim than the television series so it's kind of like it's kind of like uh 
like when you see it from that perspective it's like oh like oh i get it you know like it it was made to be a tv show but then like cut down into a movie i think it was more kind of acclaimed because people approached it kind of like a big epic three hour long like godfather type movie because that's that's what it reminds me of in structure is because you have a the beginning which is um the the christmas uh scene and then you have the middle uh, which is the the kind of in exile, you know, the kids are in exile, and then you have the end, which is the reuniting. And so it kind of has like a, a godfather, like family drama, epic attitude towards it. That being said, he, he envisioned this as his last movie. It turned out not to be, but he envisioned this as his last movie. He said, this is the last movie I'm going to make. This is going to be my last kind of epic uh, artistic statement, and it's going to be my most biographical one autobiographical one and I'll, I'll just say it like i see what you're saying i 100 percent see what you're saying because you don't know what to expect because the first hour is basically just like the opening scene and then the story opens up like and you can kind of you, you can't see the construction of the movie until you're at the end and you're like oh i get it like this is once upon a time in america or something like that like this is this is a big family epic I, I will own up. This is one of the first Ingmar Bergman movies I ever saw, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever. And I I think this is a masterpiece. I, I think it's unqualified, incredible. This is one of my favorite movies of his, probably my favorite, if I'm being honest. You know, like, I, I would like to pretend, like, oh, well, I don't know. I like a lot of his early work that hits home especially, too. But this definitely hits home for me. I... um. I, I, I love it so much. I don't know, man. What did you think of it before I start gushing over it? I I, I liked it once we got past all the the bullshit in the beginning. And I I liked like certain aspects of it. It was a beautiful set. I mean, it was beautifully shot. I loved because it's a period piece. So you have a lot of big sets and big costumes and and just it's a big story. Right. But it's it's a big story, but it's a simple story. Right. Because like at the end of the day, it's a it's a big story because of, of what it encompasses. You're seeing you're you're spending you're asking someone to spend three hours with these with characters of any kind is a big ask. But then you you do that um, and, and put them with all this everything, colors and costumes and all that. I didn't dislike it. I think I had to get to right after the father died. Right. I think that's when I kind of started getting more interested. Cause I mean, really that's the inciting incident. It just takes forever to get there really. Right. So there were some things that I, I dug just because it was relatable when it, like when it comes to like remembering being a child and, and getting in trouble and, and these big family events, be it a family reunion or these big, uh, dinners when people would get together for holidays. So like the beginning, I will say was a bit more relatable in that regard. Right. But for the most part, this movie kind of suffers from the same thing that I pointed out before, which is I just don't give a fuck about these like rich, like that speech he gives at the end. I'm just like, shut the fuck up. Like, I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it, to, to the writer, but I mean, just from like, it was so grandiose and I, and I'm assuming that was the point, but I, I, there were, I certainly enjoyed things towards the end. I enjoyed the way they, the way that asshole died. I thought that was very cool. I enjoyed the exchange between Alexander and the other brother. I think his name was Ish. Was it Ishmael? Uh, uh yeah. 
yeah, that was a creepy scene. And man, like like we said, he likes to dive into the supernatural a bit when Alexander is walking down with whatever he had in his hand and the guy, I can't remember his name, who's dead, right. like shoves him down. And he's like, you'll never escape me. <laughs> like, right. there's some haunting shit. And it's like, Jesus, did that just happen? Or is this like in this dude's head? Like, right. so there's some good shit in it, but I'm sorry. Like, you know, I, I really do think it was kind of set up for failure considering we watched the seventh seal and wild strawberries first. So I'm not going to say I disliked it, but it's definitely, it wasn't, I I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Seven Seal or Wild Strawberries. Yeah, you know, I, and just to clarify for our listeners, basically this is, I mean, this was originally conceived as a five hour miniseries, right? So you got the first hour and the inciting incident happens at the end of the first hour, basically. And so it's like a, it's like a pilot. And then you have three hours in the middle which is kind of the, uh, you know, kind of like a Dickensian, like evil stepsister or evil stepmother, stepfather kind of kind of tale. And then you have the resolution in hour five. And basically what the theatrical version does is it cuts that middle three hours down into one. So you have a three part kind of structure. And I mean, it's not three clean hours. It's like there's a little bit of overlap. But so that is the kind of structure that it is and it man i don't I, I really don't even know what to say about this i just the, the story is very simple which i love and but it's also epic you know this this is like you know epic in the old sense of the word you know this is godfather this is once upon a time in america once upon a time in the west these kind of like three hour long like big epic you know this is what i think orson welles originally wanted magnificent ambersons to be like you know even though you know the actual version that we have of ambersons is only like 90 minutes long you know kind of this grand tale about this family and you know there is the supernatural stuff and i i just think it's so sort of conventional in a way like it it it's so conventionally satisfying there's like you know, the evil, the bad guy and then the bad guy dies or whatever, you know, like it's, it's, it, it's just so, um, such a simple childlike story almost. But the thing that I love most about this movie, and I've talked about this, you know, on and on and on and on, I'm, I'm a vibes guy, you know, and the beginning of this movie, the first hour of this movie is vibes times a thousand. I, I want to live in this environment. It is, you know, it's it's 19th century, you know, kind of like Victorian, but not as, I don't know, it's, it's not stuffy Victorian. It's like there's all these, it's Christmas and there's all these like old fashioned Christmas decorations. It reminds me of, it's going to be a weird pull, but do you remember the beginning of Home Alone? where it's like Christmas and there's all these like there's all kinds of family members and they're all running in and out of frame and doing different shit. And, and like, that is what the first hour of this movie is like. And I, I want to live there. I want to be part of it. It's, 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 it's not existential and deep, like the pleasures of, you know, uh, seven seal and wild strawberries, but it's, it's just, it, it, it's tangible. I just want to reach out and live there, you know? And, well, I, I I have to say real quick, you uh you had me at home alone because that's the same exact thing I thought okay, when I was yeah. watching the movie. 
So yeah, that, that oddly enough wasn't a strange pull because, uh, yeah, dude, it, I, I mean, I think I can't speak for you about your feelings on home alone. I think I thought of it primarily because I love home alone and it it's it, the beginning is so chaotic and it is so like, it's a beautiful chaos to where it's like, yeah, I do want to be a part of this. Yeah. Like it's the holidays and there's food and there's family and there's fun. And it's always fun when you're, when you're a kid and your cousins and aunts and uncles are in town and all this shit. Right. So yeah, I can, I can get that for sure. It, I would say this and I, I never like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like these days I rarely even give movie recommendations, which is hilarious because we have a movie podcast, but like, like personally, I never, I never tell people like, Oh, you got to watch it again or whatever. But what I would suggest, because I, I see exactly what you're saying where you're starting out this movie and going, Oh my God, is this Amer- Like, Where is this going? But once you know, that it's going somewhere, I feel like that first hour would like change. You know what I'm saying? Because I can like, I I kind of like, I don't know. I kind of feel bad and like almost wish I would have said something about, about it beforehand. I mean, I don't know what I would have said, but like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like sad that you had to experience that first hour thinking it was going nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Because when you experience that first hour thinking that it's going somewhere, then you can just kind of like sit back and luxuriate in the vibe of it, you know? So, I mean, I don't know. I, I would recommend going back and just like Christmas time or something, man, you're feeling down. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I just love that opening sequence. So it's so filled with life, man. It's like, you know, and this is one of the things that's so great about, about these kind of like art house directors is like, they just make movies about shit that they like and fuck you if you don't like it or don't care. And like, sometimes that can lead to you not caring and being like, I don't give a shit. Why did you make a movie about this? But sometimes those sensibilities align with your own in a really interesting way. And that is the way that this first hour of this movie is for me. And don't get me wrong. I like the rest of it. I think it's fairly conventional after that. I mean, it's fairly conventional. It's a good movie, a good story, kind of this Dickensian you know, kids fighting against the mean adults kind of shit. But that first hour, man, it is so magical and so colorful and crisp. I mean, it is. It's the beginning of Home Alone. And the fact that it's, you know, in Swedish and that it takes place 130 years ago or whatever doesn't even matter. Like it just you see that and you go, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that feeling. I know what that's like. That is that is that's that Christmas feeling that you see that we see in Christmas commercials in 2020, you know, that that's, that's that feeling that we're hoping that we all get when we have the holidays, but never quite comes as an adult, you know? And that's why I, when I think of Christmas movies, the first hour of Fanny Alexander is what I always think of, man. It's just, it's so beautiful. And so it's like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm gushing at this point, but it's like, this is why Christmas is never good as an adult, because you're always hoping that you can get back to that feeling of being a kid at Christmas and feeling like the first hour of this movie. And it's impossible as an adult. It's impossible because you're an adult now and you've got a million other things going on. You can't just lose yourself and enjoy the moment. But in Fanny and Alexander, that's what I love so much about it. It's from a kid's perspective. It's, it's, it's it's being able to live in that moment. It's the first, you know, the first 30 minutes of Home Alone. It's not 30. It's like 10 in Home Alone. But I just, uh, I just, I love it so much, man. And when you tack that on to like the rest of the movie being 
just kind of conventionally entertaining and, and heartwarming and ghostly and stuff. I, I, I really like that, but God, that first hour, man, I, I think the first hour is the greatest Christmas movie ever made. It, it's just so, it's so fucking great, man. Well, I, uh, you know, I feel like we, we come to these every time, uh, this comes up, we always come to the same conclusion, which is like, this is just a little more simple to follow in this case. You're talking about vibing with this movie and like gave all these like warm, nice reasons. And it's like, nah, I'd rather vibe with the seven. <laughs> like <laughs> it's like, nah, I'd rather live with like the black plague in the medieval times and <laughs> questioning whether God gives a shit about any of us. Yeah. Nah, you can have Christmas morning. Yeah, but I'm going to call you on that. I'm going to call you on that. Cause I know, I know you have those little comfy, those little cunt. Oh, a- absolutely. That movie's just not one of no, them for I know, me, dude. I it was just, it was too self indulgent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, like, but I know you have those. I know you have those ones where you're just like, oh, that makes me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. I just wanna, I just wanna puncture this, this, you know, this uh, very cynical bubble that you have that you've built up on this. Uh, well, I'll tell you, those movies as I get older are fewer and far between. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I mean, that's yeah, that's true for all of us. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you, Home Alone is still one of them. Going back yeah. to that one, I watched Home Alone on Christmas with my family, and uh, I fucking, I still, both of those movies hold up still. I fucking love them. Same, they're I, great, man. They're just they're the, they're the best Christmas. Movies. When he's when he's lost in New York and shit, like I feel like I probably would have never wanted to even move to new york and live here if it hadn't been for movies like home alone 2 and uh teenage mutant ninja turtles the live action one you know yeah dude i i 100 but for, if, that's why i think fanny and alexander is so special to me and like uh, other movies are like this like you know how like you have those when you're a kid right like you watch them and you're like wow i wish i could be that or whatever and it's rare to discover a new one as an adult does that make sense? Like it's. Real. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's, it's, well, I think it's because as we get older, it's just more natural for us to be certain ways, not, not just cynical, but just certain ways emotionally in general. Yeah. And like you, 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 you like have like your own little wheelhouse. Like mine is, you know, Casablanca singing in the rain, the apartment, you know, shit like that. Yours is like Goodfellas, you know, Braveheart, Scarface, shit like that. And like, you just don't really like you, you add to the repertoire less and less the older you get. I feel like, like I know what I like and that's, that's that, you know, but with Fanny and Alexander, it's so like, I, I mean, this is 10 years ago now, but I remember just being like, Oh my God, like this is a new Christmas favorite for me. You know, like it's, it's astonishing to like discover that, but I guess I'm saying that, but I mean, I discovered it 10 years ago when I was like in my early twenties. So, I mean, that's not, it's not that uncommon, but I don't know what uh, I just want to, I just want to be clear here. So on Christmas morning, you're going to put on Fanny and Alexander and watch it. No, 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 no. I, I'm not going to put on Fanny and Alexander on Christmas morning, but I am going to put on Fanny and Alexander during the holidays. Yeah. Yeah. During the holidays, not on Christmas morning, but yeah, I'll watch it during the holidays as like a, as like a Christmas, you know, kind of, yeah, it's like a Christmas treat or something. And I may not finish it. I may just watch the first hour. But yeah, 100%. Hmm. Okay. I think you'll be watching it by yourself. <laughs> dude, I don't know. Um, like, it, it just hits that button for me. I mean, dude, you know, you know the feeling, man. When it, like, that scene at the beginning, and there's like all this like fruit and like oranges and shit. And like, 
just the way that the house is decked out and the tree and oh, fuck you, man. I like this movie. <laughs> hey, I liked it too. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, man, it was just one of those, but you know, it, it was, it was, it just had the, like if I had watched it first, I maybe would have felt different, but I, uh, it got better as it went on. Like I said, if this movie had been two and a half hours, maybe two hours and 15 opposed to three hours and eight minutes, I think it would have been better. Maybe it did need a little bit of a shave. Uh, and I'm not saying lose the first act completely, like in terms of how long it is, just shave it down some. Like, you know, you don't really need to see the old man running up and down the stairs and then, uh, you know, passing gas on a candle. I think that you could cut that. Like, I feel like you could just be like, yeah, we don't need this. So, yeah, no, no, no. It, it is it is completely self-indulgent. I mean, it, it is his most autobiographical work. Like, you can tell a lot of that shit is just, hey, I remember this happened, you know. Um, yeah, we're just going to consider that cultural differences. Sorry, Sweden. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Anyway, uh, no man, I yeah, you can go. Oh, ahead. I was just gonna say, I, I like, I, I'd never say this, but I would recommend like giving it a while and watching that first hour again, without that like expectation of like, oh my god, this is going nowhere. You know what I mean? Because like, once you surrender yourself to the vibe, it becomes a lot, a lot better. I think you know. Yeah, and I mean, I I I agree with that. Watch, I watch think that December first uh, this year, dude. Not even the whole thing. Just rewatch the first hour, and if it doesn't feel nice and cozy, then I'll you know, then. But I, but I think like I, I'm just saying like I think that expectation really kind of like like I feel bad. I'm like ah fuck. I should have mentioned like this is like this is a conventional story. It's going somewhere. You know, like I, I like I hate that you had that like feeling of like oh god this is fucking Amarcord at the beginning you know yeah and and i uh just to go back a little further uh real quick i think it's funny that you talked about i hardly ever recommend movies you know we used to do that on here then we just stopped so (laughs) (laughs) i think we did for like three episodes we used to have segments uh i I don't know did we have segments no we just kind of had i don't know i mean we do nothing to talk about movies so i mean I, i feel like we don't need to like recommend another movie on top of it you know that's true. I feel like, you know, in most cases, if we're talking about it, you guys should watch it if you haven't. So here's what I'm, um, I'm, but I, I, want, I got one. Jacob recommends this week. Watch motherfucking basketball, my guys. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to edit that out. Um, so so uh, Bergman, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I mean that sincerely. I I really Loved the, ex- the new exposure primarily to wild strawberries, which will be in my rotation. So, I mean, I consider this a huge win because the Fellini episode, I defended Fellini and I like Fellini, but it wasn't like my favorite movies. Like, I, you know, La Strada was like the strongest one. But uh, aside from that, like I consider this a huge win because wild strawberries comes out. And I, now I have, I've discovered two movies that I hold pretty highly. La, La Strada is, is, you know, is still up there. I spoke very highly of that when, when we got to talk about it. So it's a win. Bergman's awesome. I can't wait to do a second episode to kind of see what he does with his career. Maybe we can go a little earlier in his career and see what he was doing to start off. Cause he was very prolific, but all in all, man, I would give this a, I mean, this was a, a very enjoyable experience. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely have to do a, a Bergman volume two sooner rather than later because, um, his early, I really like his early work and we could dive into that. Um, and you know, Bergman is one of those directors where there's a few holes in his filmography, giant holes that I I've never seen. I've never seen, there's, uh, 
uh, marriage. It's uh, God. What is it called? Scenes from a marriage, which is from the seventies hour of the wolf, which apparently is a horror movie that he directed in the seventies. Um, and uh, some of his earlier stuff from the fifties um, and uh, the silence, we the silence would be fun to talk about, which is basically like first reformed, but in Sweden in 1960, it's, it's really kind of in that existential mode. Uh, Virgin Spring. He's got a lot of great movies. It'd be fun to talk about. Hell yeah, man. I'm down. So we'll, we'll definitely do a part two. But yeah, guys, it, it, we all four movies. Watch them if you haven't seen them. Like you will, you will definitely get something out of them, regardless of uh, of how you feel about them. So, so, are we ready to wrap it up? Yeah, I think so, man. I'll just, I'll just. I've been saying this at the end of uh, the last few episodes, but uh, these these episodes uh, see these kind of like episodes on things that are not very popular uh tend to be our most popular episodes like by a long shot uh our godard episode is is uh our second most listened to episode of all time uh which is shocking because i didn't think anybody even really knows who he is or cares uh but uh and on another one that's really took off recently is our silent films episode so it seems like you guys like hearing us talk about uh things that aren't very popular or kind of obscure you know it seems like that's really where our um our listenership likes uh to listen so i would suggest i'm my point in saying all that is i'm assuming this is gonna have some decent numbers so that being said we do this thing that we are we're starting to do called the silver screen six pack we've done two of them we're gonna do another one Uh, it's a really fun concept that we like doing uh, where I watch three movies that I've never seen that Jonathan recommends. Jonathan watches three movies that he's never seen that I recommend. Uh, and on those episodes, uh, we frequently do um, kind of opposites attract, where I usually give John like three like kind of essential art house movies uh, that he hasn't seen. Uh, so it, we have some content in there that I think you guys may be interested in that maybe the the title is a little obscure or whatever. So I just want to put a shout out to the silver screen six pack. It's a really, really fun idea. And I think it's almost kind of replaced our essential art house series that we were going to do, but it's uh, it's a fun idea. And so definitely give that a listen. If you're looking at your podcast feed and you go, I have no idea what a fucking six pack is. Uh, well, now, you know, you don't have any excuse not to listen to it. Uh, and maybe, maybe you're not listening cause you don't like it. And that's uh, fine too. reach out and let us know, say this fucking sucks. Get back to doing more director episodes, you pieces of shit. And, uh, well, I mean, speak, speak more nicely if you can, uh, but let us know. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, guys also uh, look us up on Instagram. Everything's in the show notes, Instagram, letterboxd, Twitter. We're uh, pretty active on, on, on those platforms. And, uh, and also voicemail guys, it, it's super easy. Call and hit us up. Let us know like what you think of episodes or if you have any suggestions, Tell your friends, like anybody you know that likes movies, tell them to check it out. Even if they don't listen to every episode, I'm sure they'll have a couple that they find that they want to listen to. And uh, and yeah, guys, let's keep growing this thing because we're seeing some great numbers, like Jacob said. And uh, let's keep it going. So hell yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll also say this is going to be brief because I can be quite verbose. But uh, I don't know, man. I, I came into this episode really like not feeling it just because. I don't know. It's been a rough week and then basketball came back. And so I've been kind of focused on just watching that and trying to enjoy something for once in my life. And, uh, 
but man, like we get into talking about movies and it's just like, I don't know. It's just so much fun to like, uh, just shoot the shit about movies for a couple hours. You know, it's, uh, and also I feel like most people that know me would describe me as like a beacon of light that helps them, uh, like improve regardless of what's going on in their life. So for me, the beacon of light is really cinema. Like it really doesn't have anything to do with you, but, uh, no, it's me. I mean, um, <laughs> but yeah, but no, no, dude. Yeah, that was it was a good time, man. I think we had like, you know, we really got into it on the first two. So. Hell yeah. So, uh, all right, man, you want to wrap this puppy up? Yeah, guys, like we said, tell your friends, follow us on Instagram. Let us know any suggestions, thoughts on episodes or let us know your thoughts on Bergman. If you haven't seen the movies, watch them. If you have seen them, let us know what you thought about them. And aside from that, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video.